we return today to our study of this book of 1 Corinthians that we are now studying, and we've been in for weeks, and today we come to the all-important topic of pride. Now, why is that such an important topic? Because we are all of us afflicted by it. That's why it's a really, really big deal. And if you think about it, and if you've been with us at all in this study, pride, and I'm going to prove this in a second, stands pretty much at the center of, well, basically every pathology that these people and that many of us suffer from and that we've dealt with so far in this study. Now, why do I say that? Because as we've already seen in this study, this group of Christians at this church in Corinth thought, no kidding, that they were like the spiritually elite. There was everybody else, and then there was the church at Corinth. I mean, if there was a spirit-led people, at least according to them, it was them. If there was a spirit-empowered people, at least according to them, it was them. If there was a spirit-directed people, okay, at least according to them, it was them, but not according to Paul at all. He came and he said, look, guys, I know you think that you're living by the spirit, but you're not. You're living by the flesh even though you have the spirit. And that's inexcusable. He said, look, at least when people who don't have the spirit live like people who don't have the Spirit, it makes perfect sense, but it does not make sense for you guys. You have the Spirit, and yet you're living in the flesh. Translation, spiritually speaking, you think you're up here. Let me show you where you're really at. You're right about toe level, and they wore sandals and didn't take baths back then, so that's a bad place to be. Dangerous. That's who you really are. Now, why don't they see that? Because pride affects our vision (laughs) of ourselves. It's blinding. It's difficult. They thought they were spiritually mature. They thought, spiritually speaking, they were fully grown adults. Therefore, they thought they were ready for what they called spiritual meat, a kind of teaching that is heavier, a kind of teaching that is weightier, a kind of teaching that you need teeth and a really mature digestive system to digest. Okay, that's who they thought they were. What did Paul say? He's like, guys, you're not grown up. You're babies. You don't have teeth. Forget about meat. Listen, here's what you really need, he said to them last week. All right, you need a warm bottle. You need a diaper change. You need a binky and you need a nap. That's who you really are. It's a pretty astonishing difference. These guys, and this is crazy to me, these guys, as we saw last week as well, thought that they understood the wisdom of God even better than Paul and apparently also Apollos and Peter who had come rolling through their town. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute because let's just use Paul as the example. He's their spiritual father. Okay, they're the infants. Remember how old they are? infants, no teeth, and they think they get something better than he does. He's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He has physically, literally, with his eyes, seen the risen Christ in the flesh. He's been commissioned by the Spirit of God to go out as one of the unique among all of people in all of the world and all of history as an apostle of Jesus, very few of these people who can speak and write infallibly the Word of the living God. But these guys... His children think they've got it dialed in a little bit better than he does. It's nuts. It's like sitting at the dinner table, you know, and your six-year-old sitting there eating his happy meal, you know, and you and your wife or your husband are trying to work through some highly complex, really, really adult situation that's straining all of your capacities, you know, and the six-year-old pipes up and goes, hey, I think I got this thing figured out. Really? Well, let me just get everybody in the room. Hang on a second. Hold that thought. You know, come on in, people, because I think we've got an answer. Okay, professor, what should we do? 
Okay, you don't do that. But it's about that ridiculous. It's like having your mailman show up and knock on the door. And he says, hey, here's the deal. I'm, you know, I'm on my route. I'm running a little ahead of schedule. I got about 20 minutes. I just delivered your mail and thought I could do some brain surgery on somebody if anybody needs it. <laughs> oh, well, by all means, come on in. What kind of, do, do, should we bring out the forks and knives? I mean, what do you need? These guys thought they understood the wisdom of God better than Paul. So they think they're here. And Paul's like, man, I'm trying not to step on you guys. Can you be careful? Because you're way down here. And what he's trying to do is lift them up. As we return this morning to our study of the book of 1 Corinthians, we come to this all-important topic of pride because it's an affliction not just for them, for me, for you. We, all of us, all of us wrestle with this. And the primary symptom of this sickness that we've seen again and again and again and again so far in this study is the, the symptom of boasting. It's just a repeating refrain, is it not? And again, what are these guys boasting in? Well, they have kind of arrogantly, and again, they think they're up here, sat back and they've watched as Paul has come through town and spent a significant amount of time birthing them spiritually and teaching them and getting that church up and running and then leaving to go do the same thing somewhere else. And then Apollos, this another amazing preacher and teacher coming into town and kind of building on what Paul built on and then moving on. And then Cephas, who is Peter, the apostle Peter, came to town apparently, and he's done some teaching and he's done some... And these guys have sat back as if this is their place and they've kind of gone, hmm, I think I like this guy the best. He's the most persuasive. He's the most eloquent. His rhetoric is the best. His wisdom seems to be most in alignment with what I would call wisdom. And so here's what I'm going to do, even though all three of these guys have come and have spiritually shaped us as a congregation, I'm going to identify with Peter. And this guy said, well, I'm going to identify with Apollos. And this one said, well, I'm going to identify with Paul. And then each one bragged that they were better than the other guys because of the one that they identified with. It's boasting. So the primary symptom of the sickness that we're dealing with here is that of boasting. And here's what Paul does. And he doesn't just do it for them. He does it. He does it for us too. He comes to us with the gospel. And by means of the gospel, he completely destroys our egos. But he doesn't leave us there. By means of the gospel, he starts collecting up all of the pieces of the blown up ego And then by means of the gospel, he reconstructs for us a properly sized ego. And he gives us that instead. One that is not too big, and please don't miss this, one that is not too small. One that doesn't think too highly of oneself. One that doesn't think too little either. So as we pick up our study this morning, we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want to pick it up in verse 21, where after metaphorically trying to help these people understand how they ought to view Paul and Apollos and Peter, whom they were all boasting about, and that's where we pick it up with boasting, Paul has said, look, guys, we're just farmers of the field of God that is, well, you, it's the church. We're builders of the building of God that is, again, you, it is the church. That's all we are, and you're not of us. You're of Him. We're just His stewards. We're just His servants. We're His children doing what He's called us to do. Don't esteem us too highly. And don't esteem us too lowly. So Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 21. He says, so let no one do what? Because here it is. Let no one boast 
in men. And again, that's the symptom of the sickness that is pride. And Paul identifies the sickness itself seven verses later in chapter 4, verse 6. And the word that he uses for pride is actually translated in the ESV as puffed up. And here's why. It's a very unusual word, and it's a very graphic word, meaning it carries with it a very clear graphic image, and that image itself is instructive. In other words, the image that he uses and that that word conjures up for us teaches us about our pride. It comes to us and says, hey, let me tell you about the human ego by nature. Oh, you know what? Look at this image. It's instructive. The word means literally overinflated or swollen or, and now notice this one, distended beyond its proper size, which incidentally implies that an ego has a proper size. It's not too big. It's not too small. So what is the image? I guess the image is that of an overinflated balloon, maybe, but the one that I think is even more poignant, and we've all seen this, if not in person, on TV. When you think of something being distended beyond its proper size, do you not think of the stomachs of starving children? You've seen those images, do you not? You've seen that. Large stomachs that are nevertheless empty, no matter how large they get, or at least empty of the kinds of things necessary to perpetuate and to sustain the life of the child. And so I think the first thing that this image teaches us about our egos is that by nature, our egos are empty. And incidentally, no matter how big they get, they are empty. And we know that because the Bible teaches us that, but let's also acknowledge that we know that because life teaches us that. Here's what happens, and it happens for all of us in pretty much every day. Our ego comes to us and tells the same lie to me that it tells to you. And here's the lie. Hey, you know what? You got this. You can manage your own life. You don't need the Lord to do that. You don't need help from anyone else. And on top of that, you got this. You can can manufacture for yourself a sense of self-worth and value just by achieving and doing and being and all of these other things. You, you, You can do this. And more than that, you are capable of finding a purpose big enough for yourself to bring meaning to your life apart from God. And here's the really awful part. We want that to be true because in our wickedness, we'd love to get to the end of it all and pat only ourselves on the back for doing it. It's like, right on, I did it. And there's something awful in us that is our ego and that is our pride that wants that. And so we work and work and work and run and run and run and gain and gain and gain and spend and spend and spend and achieve and achieve and achieve and achieve. And it fills us up, or at least it fills up our calendars. But it leaves us empty of the kinds of things necessary to actually sustain and perpetuate the kind of life that we all really long for. And and it doesn't just leave us empty, it leaves us bloated, distended. And distended things are painful. So the second thing I think that this image teaches us about our egos is that by nature, our egos are painful. They're inflamed. They're aggravated. They are overly sensitive. And what do painful things do? Just think about this in terms of your own life experience, your own physical body. What do painful things do? They call attention to themselves. They will not be denied. It's true, isn't it? I have this right now with my left knee. It's really irritating. Like my whole life, I've known I had a left knee. I've taken it for granted. I mean, I haven't been overtly thankful for it. God, thank you for giving me a left knee that functions completely and perfectly and without any pain. I don't think I've ever said that because I've never noticed it. 
But here's one of the things I've noticed of late, about the last six months or so. I'll sit down, like I go to lunch with one of you guys, and I'll sit down for 45 minutes or whatever. I'm not thinking about my knee. My knee isn't painful. It's not bugging me in the least until we get up to pay the bill. And then it's like, oh, man. I mean, it's like stiff and sore. And I'm like limping to the counter thinking, good grief, where did you come from? You know, it is demanding to be noticed. But by the time I get to the counter, loosening up a little bit, thinking about it less, I go to the bathroom because I'm that guy, you know, and I don't know when I'm going to see another one of those. So I come back and, you know, by the time I get to my truck, all warmed up, everything's fine, not hurting at all, forgotten about it completely till I get back to the office and try to get out. And then there it is again, and again, and again, and again. And so it is with our egos. Look, when your ego is too big, it demands that you be noticed, celebrated, recognized, and given credit. And when it's too small, it's just as aggravated. It's just as loud in its messaging, but its messaging is just different. The messaging is, let me give you all of the reasons why you'll never be noticed. You're not worthy to be celebrated. You're not going to get any credit Get the idea? Recognition? Now, forget that. And in either case, it's out of whack. And in either case, it does this by comparing us with other people. One of the things that is true about pride is that at its heart, it's competitive. We are, in our pridefulness, competitive. And so our egos gain no pleasure whatsoever out of simply having something or being something or doing something. Here's where the pleasure comes. It's in having more of that something or being more of that something or doing more of that something than other people. None of us are ever really honestly deriving joy from our success or from our intellect or, you know, from our abilities or any of those kinds of things, from our good looks. No, no, no. Here's how we derive joy. We derive joy from being more successful or maybe a little bit brighter or slightly at least better looking in our own estimation, of course, than other people, which is why when we leave the presence of people that we esteem ourselves as being more successful than or more intelligent than or better looking than and then enter into the presence of people that we look at and go, yeah, pretty sure these people are a little more successful or smarter or better looking than me, we lose all joy in our success, in our intellect, in our looks, or in whatever. Why? Because our joy was never in that thing. It was in having more of that thing. And that is true of all of us. And it's sick at its core. Lastly, I think the image of this distended uh, stomach or overinflated balloon teaches us that by nature our egos are fragile. And the reasoning for that is simple. Anything that's overinflated is at any moment subject to burst, is it not? And sometimes it does. And it isn't pretty. So here's what Paul does, and it's a wonderful thing. He comes to us with the gospel and says, All right, look, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to blow your ego up. So we're just going to pop the bubble. Boom. And then we're going to pick up all the pieces. And then by means of the gospel, I'm going to give you a a healthy ego, a a right-sized ego, a good one that understands who you really are and in whom or in what you have to boast. He says again, so let no one boast in men. Okay, so boasting is the symptom of the sickness. And you say, well, great. So then what's the cure? All right, well, just keep reading. The cure is in realizing that through faith in Jesus, as opposed to any efforts of my own or yours, what belongs to you? everything. He says, all things are yours 
And then he says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, you know, these teachers that they're all identifying with and trying to play the elevation game with one another by doing so. He's like, no, 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 we all belong to all of you. Don't pick and choose. Or, now notice this list, it's remarkable. The world or life or death or the present or the future. And then just in case we missed it, he says it again. All are yours. Why? Because it is an ego destroyer. Because through faith alone in Christ, and we can't even take credit for that. That too is the gift of His Spirit. We saw that week one. Okay, well, we belong to Jesus. You are Christ's, and Christ is God. So here's the math on this. Paul is saying, okay, listen, here's the deal. Everything that belongs to God, and just to be clear, that's everything. Okay, belongs to Christ, so everything is His. And everything that belongs to Christ, by faith in Christ, which He Himself gives to you, belongs to you. It's pretty remarkable. Including the world, and that through the cross God has planted His flag in this world and has declared it His own and has said there is a day coming. And Paul is pointing toward that day. You'll see that in a second. There is a day coming when the world will be utterly and completely remade and enjoyed forever by you. It's so certain it's yours now. The world, life, abundant, eternal life. The kind of life that can only be found in Christ, that's yours now. Death. Death? Yeah, not even death can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. Not death cannot separate us from the promises of God and the fulfillment of them completely. Not even death can separate us from the life that is ours in Christ and from the fulfillment of everything that He claims that He will give to us and thus will the present and the future. Now, why is that? Because we live today in the present, or at least we're supposed to, in light of the sure and certain future that is ours because of the life, sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are on a mission, and it is future-oriented. We live the life of the future today. And again, this is an ego destroyer because what this does is it leaves us with no one to brag on but Jesus. There's no patting of ourselves on the back in this equation. So it just leaves us, ego-wise, in pieces on the floor. But now notice what Paul does. He starts collecting up the pieces and saying, yeah, but let me show you who you are in this Jesus. What is your identity in this Jesus? Because out of that identity, if you can live out of that as opposed to one you're trying to make... It's going to free you from so many things. It's a life changer, and he uses himself, really, as the example. We see that beginning in 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 1, where he says, this is how one should regard us. So he's teaching them how to regard him and Apollos and, and, and Peter. He says, you should regard us. Here it is. Here's our identity. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Nothing more than that and nothing less. That's who we are. And so now he says, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Because he's speaking of himself to these people, that they be found popular, no, powerful, no, eloquent, no, persuasive, no, charismatic, no, that they be found successful, no, that they be found faithful, and that they be found faithful by whom? Because it's not this group of people that have begun to level charges against Paul, that have begun to register their criticisms about Paul, who are down, way down here, infants who think that they're way up here and have placed themselves arrogantly, pridefully, blindly, wrongly above Paul. 
Now it's, it's that the steward, it's that the servant be found faithful by the master. And the master is almighty God. It is, it is the Lord. He says it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And so now notice what he says next and compare it to your life. Ask yourself, can I do this? Because the answer is in Christ, Yes. With your newly found identity, yes. With your resized and properly sized ego, yes. So he looks at this group of people that he spent a couple years like pouring into, guys, that he fathered spiritually, that have now leveled all of this stuff against him. And don't try to pretend like that isn't massively hurtful. And he says this, he says, but, me, but with me, he says, it is a, and I love this, very small thing that I should be judged by you. Whew. It's a small thing, he says, very small, in fact, just in case you missed it, that I should be judged by you guys, or for that matter, by any human court, or for that matter, by any human being. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself, to which he adds now. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that fact alone does not acquit me, he says. I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord alone is the point who judges me. And here's why, because I belong to him and not to you, Corinthians, and not to any human court and not to any other human being, not even to myself. I belong to him, therefore, here's what you are not to do in regards to me. Do not pronounce judgment upon me. It's not your place. It's his place. I'm his servant, his steward, his son. Don't pronounce your judgment before he does. Do not pronounce judgment upon me before the time, meaning before the day of the Lord comes is the idea. And when the Lord comes, what will he do? He who will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and who will disclose the hidden purposes of the heart, including mine, Paul is saying, and including yours, he's saying to them, and including ours, I would say to us. And then each one of us will receive his condemnation, not from ourselves, or commendation, not from ourselves, not from each other, but from God alone. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, through faith in Christ, I, I belong to him, and, and I, I'm his steward, I, I'm his servant, I'm his son. I'm his child, and as a result, the final analysis, the only opinion of me that matters is his. That's the one I'm shooting for, faithful to him. And I know that I'm going to blow it. Regularly, I prove that, but Christ died for that too. So in the final analysis, the gospel frees us. And I made a whole list of things it frees us from, but trust me, there's a hundred others. It frees us from the opinions of other people. Probably you figured that one out. And why is that? Because our identity is no longer built on the opinions of other people. So we don't have to let those things crush us, kill us, destroy us, because that's not who we are. It frees us to receive criticism. How do you like that one? That's something, isn't it? And even to take a look at criticism to say, hey, you know what this is? This is not an opportunity for me to be crushed because my identity is not based on what this person thinks of me or of my performance or of my this or of my that. What I have, what I don't have, it doesn't matter. 
It's an opportunity, however, for me to learn about myself, a moment perhaps of self-awareness. Maybe somebody is going to show me a blind spot that I didn't even know I have, because by definition, a blind spot is something you don't see. So it's a shot for me to grow, to learn, to develop. That's a whole different way of looking at criticism and of receiving it. It frees us, had to throw this in, to enjoy social media because your identity is not found on how many likes and followers and whatever it is that you have. In fact, you don't care about that. You don't go to check how many other people have. You can just have fun with it. Frees you to allow others to be the center of attention because your ego is no longer calling out for attention. And here's why, because it's no longer in pain. It's not in pain. It's whole. It's healthy. It's like an elbow that never aches. You don't think about your elbow ever until it aches. It's like your ego doesn't make an appearance. You know, it's not something you're acting out on in that sense. It allows you to fail. Because your identity is no longer found in your ability to succeed and failure doesn't just cause you to fail in whatever your venture is anymore. And now it doesn't destroy you either because if you've got it all wrapped up in your business, for example, and your business fails, okay, does that destroy you or just the business? It's a good litmus test. When what is my identity? It allows you to succeed without having it go to your head because you realize that every good and perfect gift comes from God. It's all of grace. It allows you to help other people to succeed because you're not competing with them anymore. That's pretty amazing. It frees you from needing to be recognized and giving credit. It frees you to recognize others and to give them, not some, not most, but all of the credit. Who cares? That's an awesome thing to be able to do frees us to be forgiving because in Christ we have been forgiven. It frees us to be generous toward other people because in Christ we have everything and so we can freely give. And it frees us to receive generosity as well, which might be the harder of the two equations. It frees you to admit your faults and failures and to confess your sins and to freely admit your needs without having to worry about how you're going to be critiqued, judged, viewed, or seen by anyone else. And it frees you to receive the help that you need without feeling like, oh man, I'm usually the one that gives. Okay, well, good. It frees you to receive. It frees you of jealousy. It frees you of envy over the gifts, abilities, and possessions of other people. And it frees you as a result to be content with what you already have. And I could keep going, but here's what else. It makes you authentically full as opposed to empty, well as opposed to in pain, and solid as opposed to overinflated and subject at any moment to pop, fragile. Guys, the gospel completely destroys our egos, but then it reconstructs our egos and gives to us a properly sized ego. And Paul is like example A of how liberating, in fact, that is. So, with all that said, how's your ego? Is it too big? Is it too small? And in either case, let the gospel do its work on you. Let the gospel blow it up if it needs to be blown up. Let the gospel reshape and reconstitute it if it needs to be reconstituted. Because there is a proper size, and it's not too big and it's not too small. 
There is a proper understanding of who we are, broken, single, sinful people saved by the grace of God, remade by Christ, alone in who gets all of the credit, but nevertheless, the purchase of the blood of His Son in which there is inherent and infinite value. And living from that frees you to do all of this stuff we've talked about and so, so very much more. Okay? So chew on that. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you for um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the one uh, who entered into this world. God, who suffered and died in our place, who received the torment that we deserved for our sin. By his blood, really and truly, as we come to him, bringing him our sin and selves, claiming his forgiveness, Lord, authentically washes us clean, makes us new, and gives us, as we sang today, a new name, and it's child of the living God. Lord, we cannot run our own lives. We've proved it. We cannot manufacture and sustain a sense of self-worth. It's just way too exhausting. And it's futile as we look around at those who have accomplished and just who are so very much more than we are. We cannot find a purpose big enough in this life on our own to give our lives meaning apart from you. And we praise you, Lord, that we don't have to. So crush our pride and then remake our egos. Impress upon us who we are through faith in the Savior, forgiven, washed, made new, and brought into the family of God. And let us brag and boast upon the one who alone gets all the credit, and that's Jesus. We praise you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.